Oh, are you ready for spoiler sections? It sounded like Ben, you you leave us for the spoiler section, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess now I've been like a little bit. Some of the spoilers have been spoiled. Um, I do want to at least talk the the gender <laughs> stuff. Well, let's talk the gender stuff and maybe Golden Bow, and then Ben can make his own autonomous decision whether he wants to stay or not. <laughs> okay. So do you want to talk about the gender thing first, Ben? Yeah. Also, maybe before we get into that, I think one thing that came up the last episode that I looked into was um, uh, the nines using the Boku. And Mm -hmm. I went back to that and I think the... Nine Alpha? Nine Alpha. He actually refers to as her as her. So he says Kanajo. But then when he says we, he uses the Boku form, which is Bokura. So I think that was like when you guys heard the Boku in that sentence. Okay. It was that. And and I, so I think the other characters do refer to her with like she and, mm. and her. But and at least Nine Alpha is Alpha. just as inconsistent as us. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So when I was covering the show way back when, and I was doing videos every week, somehow, somehow staying ahead of the actual release schedule, I about killed myself, but... But I got to there. But I noticed that she would use Boku, mm-hmm. right? Um, I didn't quite know what that meant. Uh, you know, I know just enough Japanese to be dangerous, uh, just enough mm-hmm. to <laughs> potentially misinform. So I didn't want to jump too far off. And, and I just brought it up in one episode. I, I, was, I was like, guys, I noticed that she's doing this, but I don't know what to think of it. And one of my viewers kind of wrote in the comments, and he's like, well, she's a Bokuko. That's a, that's a, that's a character mm-hmm. archetype in Japanese video games and anime. In the most literal sense, it's just a girl who uses Boku instead of Watashi or whatever. And so I kind of went and chased that down, right? What does that mean? Why is she doing this? And it's it's a little bit of characterization shorthand, right? In the same way that if you see a girl with twin tails, there's a good chance she's going to be a tsundra. Yeah. And sure enough, we meet Miku, and that's exactly what she is. It's signaling that, hey, by the way, this is a this falls into a certain character mm-hmm. pattern. But it turns out it's not actually that rare to have a female character use Boku, especially if she falls into a certain categories of behavior. And so just to give you, like, I want to seek out some examples of this so I wasn't flying blind. But um, if you've seen Kill La Kill, mm. Nui, the little pink girl with giant pigtails who is almost a almost a caricature of girliness, she uses Boku. Mm. If you go back to like Hayate, the combat butler, Hina, Hinagiko, the, the uh, most popular character in the show, the student council president, she also uses Boku. And part of what she's trying to do over the series is to act a little bit more feminine because she's athletic and she's accomplished. And, and so, but she uses Boku. Um, Diane from the Seven Deadly Sins, who is a, a, the giantess among them, uh, she uses Boku uh, from this year. Ekidona from RE0 and Momoe from Wonder Egg Priority. <laughs> and then uh, the title girl, Utana, from Revolutionary Girl, Utana, use Boku. And what a lot of these characters have in common, and, and Boku codes in general, is they sometimes they're tomboys. Sometimes they are just not aware of social conventions, mm. or sometimes they intentionally veer away from social conventions. And it's a way of marking themselves as distinct. So, like, Momoe from Wonder Egg Priority. She is kind of the the taller, little bit tomboyish. Uh, you know, even the girls love her kind of trope. She's mm-hmm. kind of like the the top star from Takarazuka Review kind of uh, appeal. And she kind of feels compelled to lean into it and use um, 
masculine pronouns referring to herself. You know, we, we don't have gendered mm-hmm. first person pronouns yeah. in English, you know, so it's kind of a hard thing to even wrap our mind around. But part of her character crisis is that people look at her as though she is masculine and she wants to be more feminine. She and it, and it keeps not working out for her, but it's a desire to be that. And Utena from Revolutionary Girl, Utena, so we're going back, you know, 20 plus years now. Yeah, that's an old definitely one. definitely that kind. It has, has a bit of a prince thing going on despite being a girl. But then you got, you know, Ekidona from RE0. You, you could not attach a single masculine, traditionally masculine trait to her. <laughs> but you could attach her disruption, her complete disregard for or social conventions or from what other people expect of her. Uh, Diane, the giantess, you know, leading into the idea that big is masculine and small is feminine. She's big. She's bigger than everybody else. But that's an insecurity for her, mm-hmm. that she doesn't feel feminine. So, she, so Boku is almost an expression there of a, a bit of internal mm. dissonance. So it's, it's not necessarily seeing themselves as male because a lot of those characters, it's the opposite. People project that onto them and they go with the flow, but they actually really want to be more feminine. They actually really want to, or, or just, just characters who are firecrackers. Um, you had brought up in 12 that one of the characters from My Little Pony, when they, when it is dubbed into Japanese, they use Boku. Yeah. Uh, Rainbow Dash. Rainbow Dash. There we go. They did the same thing with Avatar, the last airbender where Toph, they had her be a Bokuko, but there's, I don't think there's anything about her that is, specifically masculine, but there is a lot about her that is, I'm not playing by your rules. You know, I don't, I don't play these games. Mm. I have some aggressive and uh, some things we might attribute as being traditionally masculine, but walking something of a line there and not being traditionally feminine is where some of these characters seem to get that, that affectation from. Yeah. Anyway, that was just a way of saying that this actually turns out not to be super unique in anime. It's, Super rare in real life, but um, I uh, someone explained it to me. Then basically, it's like, by the way, this has a long tradition. This is this is. Yeah. Um, I know you're confused because it's not that normal, or not not that normal, but like not that widespread. Um, but there's now there's probably several dozen examples. Mm, yeah, and and a lot of them are characters who are can either were raised as boys or are somewhat struggling with their their sense of like. Mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. so it's not like no one's this way but a lot maybe the majority of examples are just someone who falls into that tomboy or socially unaware seri- uh, archetype or someone struggling with their femininity mm-hmm. so the, the more i dig into this show the more complicated it gets right so <laughs> like the pronoun thing like my first impression is like oh so this character is on this identity discovery journey like Maybe that's what the mirror thing is all about. I mean, mirrors suggest an identity <laughs> commentary. Yeah, it's, 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 all, it's almost too obvious, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the thing that I really struggle with, I mean, not just this anime, but a lot of anime, is how much of this, of my own Western lens, is useful and how much do I need to dig into, like a Japanese lens? I guess specifically, like, I know that there was an intentional push in the Japanese culture when they were embracing modernity to start adopting like Western culture, like specifically like uh, sexuality and gender roles, like everything. And so like there are very specifically Western concepts that are now a part of Japanese culture, but 
this is the weird thing. It's like Japan is such a culture of duality. Uh, you know, it's it's ancient and modern. It's east and west. Mm-hmm. So, like when I I asked my mother about this like Boku no thing, and she's like, "Yeah, about what you said. Like, yeah, there's some women do this." It's like, "Do you do it?" She's like, "No." <laughs> it's like, "Did you know anybody that did it?" She's like, "No." <laughs> so I was trying to get at something like, "Is it a certain type of person?" And she's like, "I don't know. I don't want to talk about it." <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah, I get the I get the impression it is a storytelling trope that. A lot of video games, you know, if you want to go to like uh, TV tropes, go look at their entry for Bokuka. One of the first things they say is like, this is used a lot in Japanese media, but almost nobody does this in, real, in actual, sure. in real life. It's, it's, it's like girls doing, you know, nyeh speak, right? Like yeah. putting on, putting on cat ears and, and, and putting little nyeh at the end of each of their words. Yeah. You see that all over anime, but people to do it in the real world are like, ah, what are you, what are you doing? Do you think you're a cat? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, unless anyone else has anything to weigh in there, I'm like really dying to ask about the golden bow. Uh, I think I still need to formulate some more thoughts on it about like performance of gender uh, <laughs> and presentation of gender, because I'm not like dying on this hill or anything because, but like uh, uh, that Bokuko information is really interesting, but I think there is a strong trans reading of zero two. Uh, but that is something that I can formulate more thoughts on. So, well, I have a question for you. I have a question for you then. One of the things you guys talked about early on was this: the way Squad Thirteen is kind of compared to like mm-hmm. Squad Twenty Six in particular is kind of bucking some of these traditional roles, like the you know guys speaking, them being mm-hmm. quiet, and the mm-hmm. um, you know who drives and and all this individuality they have. Uh, so I guess my question is: is is Zero Two doing some behavior that we attribute to traditional masculinity does that mean women just can't have that behavior that they must desire to be a man if they act that way or is she intentionally building on this theme that you guys already talked about that there is this overturning of this constrained traditional way we have to be sorted because if because if she does things that were traditionally masculine then we say well that just means she wants to be a man sees herself as a man her identity is masculine. Is that saying that women simply can't have those traits, that they must want to be a man if they signal that way? No. No, I, I, I asked this on Reddit and I almost got banned. <laughs> My thread got <laughs> shut down so fast. You know, I, I don't know if this is where you were going, Alex, but I mean, I think separate from maybe, you know, the way she behaves, I think certain parts of the story, like, you know, kind of the horns and the like, the wanting to be human. I feel like you could kind of map that on to the like these these physical qualities that you know she she wants to change, and she feels like if she can transform those, then she'll be truly worthy of love or something like that. That mm-hmm. you know, I, I I could see how you know a, a trans person might see themselves in that that character and some of those struggles or yeah desires and if we have a uh puberty you know allegory and a diegetic thing going on will this uncontrollable changing of zero two's body which causes zero two distress things that are reaffirming what people say zero two is and not what zero two feels on the inside right i think for sure transformation is a huge thematic thread running through this entire Mm. thing 
people looking, trying to figure out their identity because they've been allowed to this experimental um, mm -hmm. situation that they actually have some autonomy to, to chase down these questions. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think you can create a situation that is relatable, that is applicable mm -hmm. to people who have like that, the, the transgender struggle, because it's absolutely a struggle, not feeling like you're, your outside matches your inside. And I think you can do that through characters who don't have to necessarily be trans to reflect sure. some of that or to have the same kind of, right? Like that's the empathy thing. Like, you know, actually understanding what someone else is going through through this. To me, it's a big thing that storytelling does is allow us to, to practice mm -hmm. empathy. Yeah, so, so if I'm getting you right, that that even if it's meant to almost be a trans allegory or something like that, that's, how, that's like independent from whether the character themselves are trans right yeah i think so in the same way that it's a sci-fi setting yet is applicable to us in not a setting like sure. this at all you know and i mean like just as an example the the struggle for people who are not just traditionally male female and straight the, the struggle for people who are just don't fit in that neat box finding and winning the objects of their heart right you can look at something like Ro romeo and juliet even if you are the straightest person ever and still identify with the, it's so not fair that society keeps these two people apart. It's so not fair that expectations of their family and their culture prevent them from getting together with, with Romeo and Juliet still being just a guy and a girl and too many hormones and not enough brain cells, right? Like that's not the commentary, but you can, you can read that applicability to a disparate situation and people who may not have a lot of experience with people who are just not simply cis and straight can still kind of build empathy like, oh, you know what? That's kind of like this situation, which I can identify with, like the Romeo and Juliet situation. And I can relate that unfairness and see, oh, you know what? Your situation, that's also unfair without it actually having to be only about people in that specific situation. Yeah. Like fantasy racism is a good example. Taking racism into fantasy setting where there are not actually races that exist you know, dwarves versus elves, you can look at that and be like, man, racism is stupid. <laughs> look how ridiculous the situation is. Elves and dwarves don't have to exist in our world for that to still be mm -hmm. a lesson people can identify, mm -hmm. with, uh, mm -hmm. identify with. Yeah, so young punk rocker, I actually really enjoyed feminist themes in movies because I could relate on a, on a certain level. Like Thelma and Louise was one that stuck out to me. Mm. Feminist reading of uh, aliens, always fun. <laughs> Is oh, there any like other kind of reading of it? One of the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we, so we've got a show that deals with identity versus community or attachment or belonging, a character that is struggling with, do I have to change to have a secure attachment or to be right. a, a member of community? And in each of their struggles, we can take that back to something that applies to us mm. because we're not parasites and trying to run around with a half classic sort of girl. Um, but that doesn't mean there's nothing in their particular situation or struggle mm. that doesn't strike us as something. You know, we're, we're not so different, you and I. Mm. We, we all kind of struggle with the same things. But as far as like, what does Zero Two actually want? Unfortunately, all the good examples <laughs> come after this episode. So, okay. Well, maybe, maybe we should start the spoilers then. And I think I will actually hop off. Unless you want to hear the beginning of the golden, golden, uh, golden bow. Well, is, is that going to be spoiler free? Uh, I can do a spoiler-free version. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm uh, sure. I'm curious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I watched your episode where you where you went into the golden bow a bit and you were talking about uh, myth and religion. And just the only thing that really jumped out at me was like uh, zero two's utility of myth and religion. Like she had this, uh, the fairy tale book and like as mythology, it could have been really, really useful for her, but it became more of this object of dogma, which turned out to like not serve her well at all. Yeah. So I guess I was just wondering if like, if that idea was something that was contained within the text of the golden bow. So to so preference the preference the golden bow, how do you how do you begin with this? All right, so it's a, it's a book. It's more than hundred years old. Where you started writing it more than yeah. hundred years ago. So you're talking about like 19th century British guy, father of anthropology, and his thing is he starts. He has this initial question. He's trying to figure out where does that myth of the golden bow and specifically the priest king of Nimai. He just has a, he has a single question he's trying to answer. And in the process of trying to answer that, he hunts down all of this mythology, collects all of these, not just myths and not just like religions existing and extinguished, but lots of little rituals and cultures and things that, that were in the present day that people didn't necessarily know where they came from. Things like May Day traditions or why do brides carry flowers at weddings? Why do we use flowers at funerals? You know, why do, where do things like superstitions come from? And his kind of revelation was that there is a pattern of human thought going back as far, far farther than we can really even reach that tries to make sense of the world through storytelling. And so the Golden Bow has this amazing influence on storytellers in addition to anthropology starting at the beginning of the 20th century because you have this kind of fascinating idea that stories and, and the storytelling, myth-making, religion, um, magic, traditions that we don't know where they come from, that they all come from the same place. That's all the same origin. It's all kind of an attempt for humanity to make sense of the world, which is what a lot of storytelling is, us trying to make sense of the world. It's a lot of what art is, you know, artists trying to figure themselves out, figure the world out, make a, make a statement, start a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the more miserable and lost the artist, the better the art almost, right? Because it's just part of that, that search for meaning. And it turns out humanity has been at that a long time. And so what he collects, and it is an exhaustive collection, like the abridged version of The Golden Bow is 800-something pages, right? Oh. <laughs> With literally, literally thousands of examples of little rituals and little myths and just little tiny things that he relates together. Um, so it's not like a single thesis necessarily. It's lots and lots and lots of theses and stringing them together. And so things like how religion or tradition keeps people in shackles comes up a lot and understanding how they got themselves into that position. And a lot of it was simply believing that they had no choice or believing that the world, the existence around them depended on the things they did. Right, like if you don't observe certain rituals, it won't rain, or spring won't come back, or the men will fail on their hunt, or the woman will die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And they they believed this is all his you know his thesis here, but they believed in magic. They believed in the idea that they could affect the world, that there was cause and effect, and if they did these things, if this, then these things follow, and. Over time, magic gives way to religion, religion gives way to science as far as like a cultural force. 
But people keep doing those things. And they no longer believe they can affect the world or they no longer believe they can entreat the gods to do things for them. They keep going through the ritual, not remembering exactly where it came from. I mean, it's, a, it's the original meme, basically, passing down cultural traditions and not even knowing how it started mm-hmm. necessarily, losing the connect to why were we actually doing this in the first place? Um, and so, yeah, it can be shackles. It can be something that compels people to do things without understanding the origin of why they're doing it. It's just a social tradition. And you can take that and apply it to some of the traditional gender roles or just the how the parasite's place in society is supposed to go and this mythology about protecting Papa and the adults. And they don't question it. They don't know where it came from, even. It just has become part of their dogma. So that's definitely part of what uh, the Golden Bough is going, is going for. But when I was doing my series on this, I was very familiar with the Golden Bell. No, nothing like an expert, but I joke that I'm kind of always in the state of rereading it. And from episode two, I felt like somebody involved with this production has read that book. No question. I don't want to say that because I'm, I don't like to reach for external references unless they are really overt. Mm-hmm. It's like availability bias or whatever. You reach for the thing you're familiar with. Like if I played for you a clip of Hoofbeats and ask you what you heard, you'd say horses. You wouldn't say zebras <laughs> because horses are familiar and accessible in your mind. You reach for the thing that matches the pattern that you understand. Mm-hmm. So I'm always nervous about reaching for external references. But all like the stuff with sexuality, the stuff with like the barren wasteland around them, the mistletoe stuff that comes up in episode one and two. I'm like, I, I think I know what they're going for here, but I'm just not going to say anything. Then you get to episode 12, and Hero's really like, focus in on this, this Golden Bell book that I read and I don't understand, and Ichigo read and she doesn't understand. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what a lot of people's experiences are, reading the book. But uh, I was like, okay, all hands on deck now. I, they definitely are invoking this on purpose. And the most obvious one in Darling of the Franks is the use of mistletoe. Yeah, because it's the one Hero himself invokes, right? So starting off, almost the first imagery of the whole series is zero to under a tree that has mistletoe. Then in episode two, we find out where they live is called mistletine, which is just another word for mistletoe. Episode nine, when he hands her the mirror, the design on the back of the mirror is mistletoe. And then, of course, everything involved with Hero actually talking about to the holy tree in episode 13 and that being where they were together last. So it's invoking that on purpose. Well, what does that even mean, though? Why is mistletoe special? You have to crawl back and put yourself in the mind of ancient man. And ancient man, not understanding how the world worked, not understanding the rotation of the earth and revolving around the sun and and all that, but for him, the onset of fall and winter is terrifying. The world is dying. Like, we know it's just going to circle back around, but for them, there is this anxiety about what do we do and... And so if you imagine trees dropping their leaves and the snow covering and animals becoming more scarce, hibernating or burrowing, it looks like the world is dying, like life is fleeing. In the case of mistletoe, it's a parasite, but it's an evergreen parasite. And and they grow on deciduous trees, especially oak trees. And if you are an ancient man walking through the forest and you see all the leaves have disappeared, and yet in some of these trees, you have these green, full-of-life mistletoe bus- uh, bundles 
that are growing off the tree, one of the possible assumptions is that, well, that's where the vitality of the tree goes. That is the saving the life force for a better day. This is winter is the death, and that mistletoe represents the future rebirth. And so the idea is that when the you know, spring comes back around, the mistletoe puts its vitality back into the tree and the whole world blooms again. You know, spring comes once again. Um, and that, you know, any, everyone from like the Gauls all the way to the Aino on, on Hokkaido thought of mistletoe as having this kind of special property because of this. And they, they thought it made a great elixir when it could help people in childbirth and um, just ascribed all these qualities to it. And it doesn't have any of these qualities. It is, it is not a medicinal plant. That, tr that has to be a tradition based in a symbolic understanding of it, not an actual understanding of its medicinal properties. And so in Darling the Franks, Mistletine is the, it's our squad, right? They're the ones apparently holding on to this seed for rebirth. Yes. Um, and, the, and the memory of Zero Two uh, and Hero meeting each other is under this tree of mistletoe. Like that memory is the potential seed for rebirth. It even happens in winter where you can very plainly see the mistletoe. And so the, the promise is that things, winter will come, but spring will follow. And so having the mirror also have this mistletoe is nice in this episode and leading up to it because Hero gives it to Zero Two in episode nine. It's, it was Naomi's, it was his former partner's. He gives it to her. And she, when things start breaking down between the two of them, she shatters the mirror. And it gets even more shattered in this episode. Things are definitely falling apart. And she even looks at it before she, she leaves. It's like the last lingering thing she looks at before she exits the room. But the fact that it has as bad as things look right this second, the fact that it's mistletoe mm. tells you that there is actually a promise of rebirth in this thing. Right. Um, that is the symbolic meaning of oh, that. Oh, so why Zero Two takes One a look many. at it when she walks out of the room? Yeah, because their, their relationship is in shattered pieces at that moment. But having the mistletoe on the back, for anyone who was familiar with the Golden Bow going into this, was like, uh-uh, <laughs> I see that. Right. So there's a lot more. I mean... I'm not going to say, you can't understand Drawing the Franks unless you read The Golden Bow, okay? <laughs> but some things will not make sense. Makes sense. All right, yeah. so we're going to take a break for a couple months. And we're we're going to start reviewing start The Golden Bow chapter by chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's very long. Oh, yeah, I mean, looking back, like, it's all over the series. Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, man. Yeah. Actually, I can send these to you where I can read them out loud. I went and grabbed a couple of passages from the actual text that I thought it would be relevant but i know i've already talked a, a great deal so you might not want that well, I know at least as a resource we would love time. to have whatever you whatever you are offering you probably don't need you probably don't need these quotes um it would certainly drive the point home a little bit but some of it is stuff i've already said it's stuff i've already said so it doesn't necessarily have to be said i just thought it might be interesting but the answer to do you want to talk about spoilers okay yes <laughs> <laughs> But but I know we've already gone a long time here, which I figured I would uh, figured I would probably screw you guys up in that way. <laughs> again, I spent what thirty two hours in an edited, scripted form already talking about this series. So there's no shortage of things I can hey, yap we about. Follow the passion. Um, uh, but yeah, it sounds like you're very motivated. Like so let's make some decisions about <laughs> who wants to stay and who wants to leave, and how much longer we think we're going to be able to go. 
And I know oh. you, Alex, were the one who wanted to get off, so I, I apologize. Well, I'm the one who has to edit it, this is so a, this, I have two motivations. This is, yeah, this is editing, editing hell, <laughs> which I have a lot of empathy for that. Yeah. We, 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 got to, we had a chance to talk, to talk on Friday a little bit, and uh, I, I, yeah, I hate editing. <laughs> I feel you on that. Mm. Um, Alex is Ichigo right now. He's got <laughs> personal and professional <laughs> motivations. <right>. <laughs> Anyway, I think I will I will hop off, but that uh, that was fascinating. Definitely something I want to look into because I'm a big like kind of hero's journey fan, and it seems like a kind of similar thing that I haven't dug it, into. So it kind of sets Campbell on the path to write the Hero of a Thousand Faces. The uh, Golden Bow is it, it's just yeah. a huge influence on literally everybody writing anything in the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. just about. Yeah. So Very cool. it's it's even though we don't consider we we take issue with some of the things he says now it's like freud where freud had to happen if we don't use freud's techniques anymore but he kind of had to happen for a lot of psychology to advance yeah. it's a similar situation for anthropology when it comes to uh fraser all right all right good night you guys thanks, thanks ben uh, yeah but thank you so much like that was thanks for having great me. information i'm absolutely gonna dig into the golden bow a bit i really know nothing about it but it sounds fast. Well, it's a yeah, it's it's out of copyright protection, so you can get a you can get a Kindle version for a dollar, or wow. you can just read it free online if you're you know uh, like I think Gutenberg Project has the whole thing, searchable text and and hot links to the chapters and stuff. Okay. So nice. No, re- he abridged it himself. There's no reason to chase down the gargantuan full version. Right. He was so fascinated, he continued to collect more and more examples. Mm-hmm. But it's like it just makes his case stronger. Doesn't change the argument. So I feel like you can probably. You can probably go for the abridged version, which is plenty long. Yeah, 800 pages, you said. That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, what drew you to it in the first place? Um, okay. So when I was a, a young lad and getting into creativity and writing and storytelling and art and all that, um, I was a big fan of modernists, the modernist movement. So you're talking Eliot, Pound, Joyce, all them. Because mm-hmm. that period of writing was characterized by a lot of external references Lots of invoking other pieces, other languages, other traditions, this mishmash of influence and stream of consciousness and all that. And Eliot, in particular, invokes the Golden Bell and a work called From Ritual to Romance, which is basically a much narrower focus, basically taking the Arthurian legend and saying, this is fertility rituals. This is that's what this is. That's what this comes from. That's what the Grail is. That's what the Lance is. That's what the Fisher King and everything involved with that so suffers a wound, and the the rest of the world suffers because of it, or his kingdom does. Blah blah blah. And so I was like, well, that sounds interesting. A bunch of these guys are talking about this guy. Well, let me look him up. And it was a formative place in my life as far as making sense of the world, and it just the connections he draws, even if some of the stuff is under debate now. You know, academics love to try to pull down the academics of a previous generation anyway, right or wrong. And uh, so there's been a lot of that for toward him now. But storytellers just ran with it because mm-hmm. here was a guy showing with, I mean, I mean, literally thousands of examples of a link between humanity's ability to, his uh, attempts to make sense of the universe and storytelling, like where some of these rituals come from. And so storytellers are on the other end of that. They're trying to make sense of the world through stories where these guys made up stories to explain the world. It's almost like between the two. Here's the real world effects. Uh, yeah. Here's their stories that explain it. And then uh, us <laughs> in the future, we're like, well, here's the real world that we understand. Here's stories to try to make sense of it. 
and the two were not so dissimilar. Yeah. And I just found that really fascinating. Yeah, that is very interesting. And you just see there's so many little, and I brought them up, like flowers at weddings. Is that's a fertility thing, and flowers are all over Darling the Franks too. I mean, right. I, I picked a mistletoe just because it's the most obvious thing, but you can go through with the rain. Um, you know, in, during the, my series, I even started talking about Hero as like a rain king hero because of the stuff that Zero Two talks about him. Right. And he seems to embody this idea of fertility back to the land. Mm-hmm. And we're in the spoiler section now, so I can talk about how yeah. I I guessed from episode two that the kids knew nothing about sexuality which I don't think is a hard leap to make. But from that, I further figured this world is sterile, that the people of this world can't reproduce because the wasteland outside and that being a reflection of the actual fertility of the people or the king or the priest, depending on what culture, is extremely pervasive throughout human attempts to make sense of things through storytelling and mythology and all that. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately was like, there's no more reproduction in this world. They're sterile. That's what this is. That's what this is signaling to me, with all that. But I couldn't say it mm-hmm. then because. Uh, and then we get to episode nineteen, and it's like, by the way, everyone's sterile. <laughs> they they went for immortality instead of they yeah. jumped out of the cycle of death and rebirth to preserve themselves, and the world suffered. It's very literal in that case, in the sense that they needed the magma energy to be immortal, and so it's almost like cause and effect are reversed. There, the world is sterile because they wanted to live forever, ever. Mm-hmm. They wanted their own vitality. They took it from the world instead of the world riffing off of uh, their situation. But it's the same idea that as the people or their leaders go, so goes the world around them. And in the case of Mistletine, even though I brought up the example we talked about a second ago, when they're trying to rebuild the world in whatever episode that is, the the fertile soil, the only fertile soil, yes. is what's in Mistletine. Yes, that's it's, right. That's, that's, that's literally the... Mistletoe holding the vitality of the world, waiting for the day it can come back and spring can be reborn. I mean, it's, it's really on the nose. All right. So, th- so do you do you feel like uh, the creators of the show had it all planned out? You know, the the last act takes a lot of criticism for feeling chaotic and like, oh, they didn't really have a story in mind. But like this conversation we're having, like, it makes me feel like, yeah, they did have this thing planned out. Yeah, that's that's my that is my take now. Or at the very least, they thematically knew what they wanted to do. They had certain ideas they wanted to play with, certain subject matter they wanted to hit on. Yeah, it's not that the details of the story are immaterial to that because they're not. But so much of the final episode, especially but definitely the the few leading up to it, is just a continuation or even a final argument of the things that were set up all along. You know, I'm, I don't know how to or necessarily even want to do a lot of speculating about what the production process was as far as why we got this particular story. You know, I feel like that way madness lies, right? <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's easy to get a conclusion and evidence reversed there. Mm. But when I was covering this, and this might be better to talk about whenever I come back because it'll be that episode. Oh, right, right, right. Um, yeah, I think I know where you're going. Um, for the very final episode, when I made a video about it, I opened the whole episode by reading something I wrote in episode 19. <laughs> it was actually just a comment on a YouTube comment because I was uh-huh. at that time I had no other way to interact with my viewers, so I spent hours and hours res- responding to comments. And I made this whole statement about the kind of thematic journey I thought we were on. And this was back at episode 19, so before some people really feel like it jumped the shark. And I read that again at the beginning of my video for episode 24, and. Sh- 
it still matches. Nothing actually had changed thematically, like where I thought we might be going, what I thought they were going to talk about, what I thought the arguments might be, maybe even the tone that our ending may have. From 19, you could see where it was going. At least I thought I felt like, felt like I could see where it was going. And I read that again at 24, even after everything that seemed to change from 20 on, and it still, it still matched up. So that spoke to me and said, yeah, at least these parts they intended to do. This was, a, this was always the destination. Yeah, I, I see it now. I mean, I, I'll admit, like, I was a part of, like, the consumer demographic that was not happy with the ending. But you know, now that I can see, like, the, the death and rebirth themes, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, this is the way it has to go. Uh, has to go. Like, you, you'd be overturning it. Yeah. Veered away. Yeah, if they went for the Hollywood ending, it would have been at odds with the foundation they laid. Sophie said last huh. episode, not last episode, episode 12, that it was too planned out. That the plan oh, was always really? very strong. And thus there were detail oriented things that seemed to come out of nowhere from the audience perspective. Instead of Evangelion, where they were like, well, we can rewrite whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as we can justify it with animation and dialogue through like the next episode this instead they had this like superstructure based largely on this golden bow thing uh and so things like the strong example was uh futoshi and kokoro futoshi's like do you want to make this forever promise and then 10 minutes later kokoro's like i want to be with mitsuru it felt like oh if they had been working on details instead of superstructure they probably would have caught that and they would have had that promise in a previous episode we kind of made a bit of a rough prediction that was going to happen or that something along that was going to happen because she starts noticing him in episode five and you can actually, it's, it's actually in the credits. Their credit there too, when he flashes through everybody's little, the team lineup, whatever, originally they're with their original partners, but each of their character is kind of looking over at the other mm. person. And after episode <laughs> 11, they changed the opening. They actually put them together. And you can see they've been looking at each other the whole time. Oh, wow. Okay. That's why I like uh, my mantra, my guiding principle for analysis anyway. Not how I react to it as an audience member, but as someone trying to analyze is I got to give the storyteller the benefit of the doubt. Because until I've seen the whole thing, they know more about the story than I do. <laughs> there might be very good reason for the elements I don't like. like. The sexuality and stuff that comes up in episode two. It's one of the reasons I was like, Golden Bell, I'm on, I'm, mm -hmm. I know what you're up to. This is all about fertility. This is all about <laughs> death and rebirth cycles. This is all, I know what you're at about, darn it all. But for a lot of people, that's like, oh no, fan service. If it's titillation, it must be fan service, which I've listened, listened enough to know. I think I'm pretty sure it's you, Brian, who is... Now, now go live to Brian for is that fan service or not? Oh, that's right. Seems to be the pattern. But I'm of a similar thought process that fan service by definition means gratuitous, that you could cut it away mm. and nothing is lost. And there are a lot of series where that's just not true. And when it becomes important in some way, it ceases to be fan service. They can still be titillation. In fact, sometimes titillating the audience is the purpose, right? Like yeah. draw them in. For example... Maybe sounds unintuitive as an example, but sex in pornography is not fan service. You can't take the sex out of a porno. That's the purpose of the porno. It's not fan service. It's actually literally the point. Mm -hmm. It is not beside the point. You take that away, 
I don't know, what are you left with? Awkward conversation about whether or not someone's going to fix the dishwasher? (laughs) (laughs) Fixing the cable. And so it's all about what the work is actually trying to do. And if it is trying to be sexy, talk about sexuality, make it an important part, invoke male gaze as technique rather than as like something to stay away from, then I feel like it ceases to become a fan service. It may still be titillating, but sometimes that's the point. I feel like two... Episode two is is kind of an f- audience filtering moment. Like, are you the kind that sees any kind of display of sexuality or what you perceive as exploitative or voyeuristic, and that's as far as you can go? Do you disconnect with the story at that point? Or are you interested in why they would do that? You know, from watching a work, and this comes from being someone who's trained to be a writer, but I'm usually thinking not so much about what is happening, but but why these decisions? Not what is on screen, what is on stage, but what is the storyteller attempting to do with the things that are on stage? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the answer is fan service. Sometimes it is just get the get those numbers up. We have a we don't have a very solid script, but let's you know let's throw a few titillating shots in there and that'll bump up our Blu-ray sales, right? Mm-hmm. We'll sell some more merchandise that way. But in Frank's case, I feel like there's almost almost everything you can point to in the series and say, oh, that's just fan service. I feel like I could make a counter argument that, no, actually, that's sexuality and figuring it out and some of the awkwardness of it and in-your-faceness of it is what it's doing on purpose. And audience reaction is part of it. I was just wondering if like, if there was something the, the joint studios could have done to, to have their story better received like you go on any anime forum and you talk about darling and the franks and you are immediately shut down with like you know it's the stupidest show in the world or whatever i think they did something very risky i mentioned scum's wish earlier Mm -hmm. that is not going for broad appeal no it has a very specific kind of story it is going for it does not pull any punches as it tells it but that's okay it's it's going for a more mature audience that can either relate to this or handle it or can stir up you know provides some people actually maybe a first experience with some of the terrible things that go through it. Darling the Franks, just by the way it was assembled and, the, and leading into Super Robot and, and all this spectacle they do, are trying to make it more mainstream. They're trying to go for a big audience. And the risk, of course, is that you, you're going to ostracize some people. Some people, the, thing, the actual thematic, symbolic complexity of this thing is dense. And it, but it looks like it's in a a happy, you know, rock'em sock'em robots package, and you you get an audience that doesn't quite doesn't quite know what to do with that, or they don't care enough about that to put in the deep read to try to pull apart what is on the screen and what does it potentially mean, you know, to to separate signifier from signified and ask why, and they could have made it more popular. By dumbing it down, I hate to say. And that's not to say that nothing was a misstep in the whole thing, but the the rancor begins with episode two. Yeah. And it's so deliberate. It's hard for me not to believe it's deliberate. And I feel like you guys did a good job talking about it when you did episode two. Okay. Here's all these things, and it's like, I can't help but feel like <laughs> this wasn't random, mm-hmm. you know? You like the use of, I brought up the use of male gaze already. You know, male gaze was a trouble, was a problem back when you just studios acted like oh well you know straight male is the default that's who has the money that's who we're marketing to exactly yeah so man walks into the room it's just a normal shot 
The woman walks in the room, camera's going to start at the floor and work its way all the way up. And it's going to be, the, and the audience is forced to be that voyeur. And so that's a problem if that's how you treat every film where you don't even think about the fact that, you know, at least half your audience is not into this, but it can be used on purpose to accomplish a, a specific thing. Uh, Darling Franks has it in episode one. When you first meet all of the parasites in that little room where each of them has a single line and they're talking about hero, whether he's leaving or not, and, and people have these different proclamations, Ikuno has this thing where she looks over at Ichigo, right? It's the very first hint that she's going to be into Ichigo. She glances over, and then we are in her view, and the camera does the the floor-to-ceiling pan That's up right. of Ichigo. That's right. It does a male gaze thing of Ichigo, and that tells you she's not just looking at her. Ikuno looks at her that way. And Goro, the same thing will happen between Goro and... Um, Ichigo in episode eight. He'll notice her in her swimsuit and the camera will will see him look sideways. And then the next view is the camera looking her once over. And so we are being forced into his point of view to understand he's he's looking, he's looking her over. He's he likes what he sees. And so it can be used as technique. The problem is when it's just for, oh, let's let the audience, let's give them a little eye candy. Mm-hmm. Um, same things happens in that episode again. We'll have Goro, um, sorry, not Goro, uh, Futoshi and Zorome look at Kokoro and um, Miku. Miku. Thank you. I don't know why I'm blanking on this. Playing volleyball. You might think, oh, that's for the fans, but it's actually we're seeing what the two of them are seeing and understanding why they are reacting. If you If you just have them look and you have this long, wide shot of them playing volleyball, it's not the same effect. It's not, yeah. right? The, the turnabout's fair play. There's lots of shots of the guys in <laughs> in nothing, in towels, in their underwear. Mm-hmm. You know, there is not as much of the lingering close-up, which I feel like is probably missing. That probably actually, it would have been fair to do that because there are moments when we know the girls are looking at the guys. Yeah. You know, like Miku looking at the 26 plantation guy, Ichigo looking at Hiro. I feel like that was a maybe a misstep. Uh, to not have the same kind of voyeuristic forcing the audience in that for the guys. Yeah. And honestly, that might be an answer to your question. That is not as well received in the anime audience as the, the same thing except with girls. Yeah, I, I had a, a friend remark about this. Like if you've got this story and it's talking about obscuring sexuality and intimacy, who would be the most beneficial to hear your story? Probably people who don't understand the boundaries between sexuality and intimacy and what is it that's going to be appealing to that audience. It's a, a technique used by a, a psychotherapist named James Hollis. Uh, he tries to help men with anger management problems riddled with toxic masculinity and uh, his material. Uh, it's framed like men are under attack <laughs> and, you know, and it's trying to draw these guys that, you know, have these really problematic views and when he gets their attention, that's when he sort of works his magic. Yeah, having an audience in mind, I think managing expectations is a very hard mm. thing to do. Yeah. And really impacts how someone experiences a story. You know, if you go in expecting comedy and you get horror, it doesn't matter how good the horror is, mm. right? Like someone's going to be disappointed. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with the text. You kind of have to manage that. And I feel like good storytellers spend the early part of a story establishing that expectation and so i feel like frank's hitting us with it hard in episode two means there is an awareness of the audience Mm. 
we're going to talk about sex and intimacy and all how messy it can be. And later on, we get the nines and we find out Ikuno, yes, she's not just a scroll girl lesbian. She is an actual, actual lesbian. By the way, so is Naomi. There is this, hey, we're going to talk about this stuff. And it's not in like the, the dry way you might, uh, a drama might do. We're going to do it via super robots, end of the world kind of thing. Stopping, a, yeah. <laughs> stopping an assimilation plot. And, uh, but trust us, it's, it's, it's all going to work. It's just, it'll be messy, but come along. Come, come make sense of it with us. All right. So I only have one more question and it's like, this is into like really spoilery stuff now. How old do you think these pilots of squad 13 are? It's a great question. Like, I feel like <laughs> I, they, they've been artificially engineered. It seems like they've had their growth accelerated. I think so. Yeah. We get these hints at the end about like seeing other like squad uh, 26 and in uh, a couple members of squad 13, like graying. Uh, like, wh- what are we looking at? I thought maybe maturity wise, they were like about 13 or so. No, no matter how old their bodies look. Right. If you want to go with the theme that your your physicality and your identity are distinct things, and that your cultural tradition and, and your identity are also distinct things, then having their bodies and their mental, emotional development be out of sync, I feel like, matches up with that. Here's a situation where even if they were like 25, let's say, mm-hmm. and got there the slow way, their understanding of the world is so constrained and mm-hmm. limited that they wouldn't be exactly the same, but it's not like they would be a, other what we'd consider a healthy 25-year-old experience to be. And so you, I mean, you can go the other way and say, man, they might be like 10 years old. They're just forced to age up, and that's why they act the way they do. These, This is the best of the best, so even as precocious as they may be, the they would still work out. Like They would still act this way because of their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, one thing that is weird about timeline is they talk about all of them going into puberty at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's like the focus of episode eight. Mm-hmm. But like puberty's already hit these guys, obviously. Yeah, the women they, they have they, breasts and hips. Yeah, they've they've waist to hip things going on. Guys have the shoulder to waist thing going on. The guys are mostly taller. You know, it's, uh, it's secondary sexual type uh, characteristics are all mm-hmm. over the place, and so. Puberty's happened, right? Um, so is that a delay? <laughs> is that part of the sped up process that they actually went from 10, 11, however old they are when we see them in garden to being aged rapidly into late adolescence? And so the mental part of puberty is almost like delayed <laughs> and, and catching up like an echo mm. to the actual physical part. I feel like the fact they never actually pointed out might be the best clue. Yeah, so I mean... Uh, it's still consistent with their world building. Like everything is out of sync with the natural order, which I guess is, I feel like they're, they're, we need a better way of framing that than the natural order. That seems like a, a politically loaded way of framing something, but it's out of sync with like the, the death and rebirth cycle. Right. Until the end. Oh, right. right, right. There we go. Uh, Alex and um, we talked about this Friday that uh, for me, one of the, the big things I take away from the finale is that you have a biological descent, right? So a lot of the fertility things, bringing the world back, having first kids and, and people pairing off and starting to repopulate the, uh, humanity, you have that kind of descent. That is one of the legacies of this time period. But the other one 
is the one that Zero Two and Hero have. They're unable to reproduce in that biological sense. Mm-hmm. But their legacy is kind of, of is stories, is storytelling. It's the passing on of knowledge, the passing on of cultural tradition, the passing on. That's the that's their child, is, in essence, that they leave for the world. And then their story becomes a picture book and is passed on, is read by other people. And so you have the the gene and meme idea, where there is both a a genetic descent, nature reproduction. Um, all of that, people having kids and families and whatever shape that takes. And this, the meme part, the passing on of cultural traditions and understanding and technology and all the things we see happen in kind of the epilogue sequence, that that's their child in, in one sense. So the idea there can be both a biological oh, and a yeah. cultural slash intellectual birth and rebirth. Mm-hmm. You know, Kokoro and Mitsuro's story mirrors zero to and hero's story like pretty closely mm-hmm. you know you step back and look at the major beats and it's like this is very similar <laughs> even down to like the memory wipe and finding each other again mm-hmm. and we even without knowing what happened before they still mm-hmm. fall for each other yeah like it's uh, been fast forward yeah yeah like it just it speeds through but it's the same idea but they have the first child but at the same time the zero two and hero are going away to stop the end of knowledge the end of descent this this end of individuality that Verm is after. The lack of diversity of individuality. Uh, you know, one of the, the color coding things that I think is very cool, we can talk about this in 20 when we get there. Red and blue show up a lot in uh, yes. <laughs> Dog and the Franks, and it's clearly like, okay, you know, these, these characters are more associated with these colors, the genders are associated with these colors, but Verm is all purple. Verm is red and blue mixed together, no distinction. It is the haunting because it's also the color of synthesis between the two. And you're like, yeah, we're, we're working towards a synthesis moment where red and blue will become this transcendent thing. And then it's the color of the enemy. And you're like, oh, gross. The, the oh, God. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of it's a commentary on you know, there is an individualism versus collectivism thing going on yes. in the story. Right. And that seems like an argument, the final or not a final argument, but an argument saying a, a constant progress towards more and more collectivism is not the final answer. Because when they destroy Verm at the end and all his souls escape, they're, they're still their individual red and blue selves. And, and Zero Two and Hero hold on to that to the bitter end. Um, and so I feel like that is reflected in Squad 13 and mm-hmm. all their individuality and all their confusing identity and sexuality questions about themselves versus what we see at the other squads and the mixing together with no distinction that two people can grow very close to each other without ever becoming each other. This is a communalism versus collectivism. Yeah. yeah. To, to, to divide it finer on that, Mm -hmm. on that side. Well, and we see it uh, mirrored in the way they, the surviving pilots organize their society. Now that, the hierarchy structure is gone. Everyone's equal now. And they just start working mm. communally. And because there isn't anything like, you know, it's not a society we would recognize today. There isn't like private ownership of means of production because they don't understand what that is. It was never introduced into their yeah. lives. They're so far past that. We kind of, we're going through this and we know suddenly the children are left behind. The adults have absconded with Verm and, they're, they're 
kind of meaningless almost, it seems, life of just peace and no advancement and no wrinkles in their day, their immortality. And it's, it's linked up with this, they stopped, they stopped the death and rebirth cycle. When that happens and the children are left behind, it, it's, it was obvious to us at least that like Squad 13 is going to be the ones who are the spear point. They have to teach everyone else how to do things for themselves, but they've had practice being individuals, <laughs> working as a team, uh, dividing up strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. That happens in like the partner shuffle episode, episode 11, where you split the partners up and you know, Mitsuru and Ikuno have had trouble and they change the different partners and the, the other partners are like kind of better at this and trying to rein in Futoshi. You kind of wonder like, why is Futoshi part of this elite squad anyway? Because he he seems so hapless a lot of the time. But he like immediately takes charge and 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 gives Ikono a vice and 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 throws himself in the way. And you're like, wow, this guy's actually incredibly competent. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that this split up would work? And and some people are stronger at other things uh, than others. The same, of course, Kokoro and Mitsuru have a different little problem. Yeah. Um, but just the shuffling there and them not being interchangeable with each other, I think, emphasizes this. You know what? Individuality's got got some upsides, you know. Mm-hmm. But it never takes it all the way to one extreme or the other. It never says individuality's always mm-hmm. the right answer, or you know, a synthesis, or communalism, or just a complete collective, like to the degree of everyone having a single hive mind. That's not the answer. It's somewhere, mm-hmm. somewhere between here. We can argue about where exactly, but. This here are here are the two extremes, or some of the extremes, or some of the problems of each extreme. I guess I should say. Yeah. Well, and we got that in this episode where Ichigo went like to the extreme of individuality. Like, this is what I fucking want. To you know, mm-hmm. the point where we've had several scenes where someone was so tied up in what they were feeling, they couldn't see the emotions of the person in front of them. Like Futoshi was like make this forever promise and like thought Kokoro was really into it when Kokoro was really like, uh, yeah, sure. I guess if it's important to you. Uh, so Ichigo does the same thing and it's all about her individual, uh, uh, identity and it like overwhelms her understanding of the group dynamic and what's best for the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Kokoro doesn't know how to stand up for herself. It's the thing she admires about Mm. Mitsuru that he goes his own way. And so in that moment when he's like, oh, promise me we'll be forever. She doesn't know how to say about that. Wow. <laughs> whereas, whereas Ichigo, Ichigo has no problem being like, this is what I want in the moment. <laughs> this is how things should be. And we see that taken yeah. to extremes the other way. So it's almost like uh, neither of these extremes yeah. is the right answer. But, or at least both Brilliant. have pitfalls. Gosh, so many layers to this show. This is the third show I covered. And it's why I liked it in each time I need to pick a show, at least my original pattern. So watch the first episode of basically everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking for storytelling competence. I'm looking for something that allows me to do that thing where I just trust the storyteller. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to say yes or no, this was good or bad while I'm watching it because I don't have the full context yet. Um, but I'm still looking for someone I feel like I can trust. And the first episode of The Drawing of the Franks showed me a lot of competence. So much is packed into that episode. It does something I call um, economy of scene, mm. which okay. is making your scenes count, essentially. Like, you don't need a scene that just characterizes one person or two people and nothing else. This is just an example. But if you can have a scene that is 
meant to characterize, but you can also slip a little bit of theme in there. You can slip a little bit of world building in there at the same mm. time. So um, you're really into like the economy can, of storytelling, like absolutely not it's, squandering your time and chances. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're exactly right. In the, and this goes back to the conversation we had off camera, basically. But the story patterns which pass down to us have gone through something of an evolutionary descent themselves. The ones that actually work and the ones that resonate with people and don't just fall into obscurity, um, those are the patterns we have. Those are the ones we recognize. We know that Hero's Journey works. We know that a strong three-act structure works. You know, We know that twists work and an emotional delta works in a story mm. because they've kind of gone through a little bit of survival of the fittest themselves. There is a kind of refining of what does and doesn't work. And efficiency in storytelling really wins out mm. a lot. Um, how many things can you do with this scene, this episode, this particular shot? And, uh, and people recognize it, even without any education, they recognize it. In the same way, you don't need a musical education to understand when something sounds dissonant or out of note or out of rhythm. You just you just know <laughs> that that's, that song was not performed well or put together mm -hmm. well. I don't need a single day of musical theory or ever pick up an instrument to recognize this. And I think the same goes for storytelling. Mm. We feel when the structure works. We feel when a scene is dragging or rushing or is too disorganized. Now, I think the economy of a scene, making a scene do as much as you can make it do and still be clear is a real hallmark of, of storytelling yeah. aptitude. And episode one is just chock mm -hmm. full of it. The amount of stuff that is accomplished in that one episode. And so much of it, you have to look back and even understand why it was relevant. But that doesn't lose us out of the gate. You know you don't know why you're seeing a giant tree and a red girl and a bunch of snow and then some girl twirling around in cherry blossoms uh, in a uniform. And um, you just know, okay, later this will make sense. But the narration over it paints this mood and it immediately is contrasted with Hero delivering a different version of some of the same thoughts in a different mm -hmm. environment. Um, you set up their starting point there, you hit a bunch of themes, you understand they're in a different place, you get the world building in the little interstitial part where she's flying over and see we see the world, what it looks like, and she's never seen an ocean and she wants to swim in one, and her partner's all beat up, and she tastes herself, and she's got horns, and mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's, there's so much in that yes. first like five minutes that you don't know what it means, but it still resonates because it's efficient, because it moves it through it. It gets us to the title hit. We know that the two of them are looking for something, and they look at each other right to end it, and you're just like, oh, that's probably the shape of this whole thing. It takes like five minutes yeah. to do that. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, these guys know what they're about. <laughs> let's yeah. let's do this one. Um, so Nishigori uh, like wrote and directed Frank's uh, he also did Idol Master, which is such a different show. Um, is it though? Isn't it about learning to be a better friend, support each other? Well, yeah, I was just wondering, like, Frank's did something uh, remarkable with storytelling, but, you know, like, it was a joint effort. My, my mind just keeps going back to this is like, uh, God, it must have been so hard to write this story with, like, all these different inputs that had to have been just at odds from time to time. 
So I'm not big on figuring out who, like the cast, or mm-hmm. the staff for this. This is not because I don't respect what they've done. It's more goes back to that death of the author idea. Right. Like, like I don't want to think about the guy's past work. I mean, people did this during the run of this. They're like, oh, Trigger's involved. Oh. So I'm immediately compare this to Grin Login. I'm going to immediately compare this to Kill a Kill. I'm immediately look at these other things we know they've done. Obviously, it's Evangelion. Let's compare every, it all the way around. And I think that that go ahead and predisposes you to looking for certain things or assuming certain things. Uh, so I usually try to stay out of knowing who is who. Yeah. But sometimes that still shows up. Um, I made a comment way back then that I really liked uh, some episodes in particular. Right. I really liked the structure of, I pointed out episode 22 and episode 13 and episode 5. But in particular, I felt like those were just really well-structured, well-paced episodes. Mm-hmm. And somebody pointed out to me, well, those were all storyboarded by the same person. I didn't know that. Yeah. I might have been looking for that if I had known it. Like, oh, look, let's look at comparisons between that. Not knowing who was involved, I could still tell this was done a certain way and I like it and I, and I thought it was done with a lot of competence. And it turns out to be the same person. Um, so I, I like coming to that conclusion. Like, I feel like that says a lot about that storyboarder that I didn't know it was the same person, but all their pieces struck me as really well done, right? Yeah. And so I do think... The fact that I didn't feel that way about every episode tells you the problem of like story by committee. <laughs> and for animation, there's so much work that goes into it. It it is always kind of a joint effort. Wonder Egg Priority earlier this year that I enjoyed quite a bit. They tried to do it all themselves to a certain degree, and it started causing problems that that had it was ma- marred a bit by the production issues that came up. Mm. And I think it was a attempt to keep more control than normal and it didn't work out necessarily the way they wanted still really done really really well done like don't that sounds wrong like i'm like i'm crapping on it oh no quite the opposite but there's the pitfall of trying not to do it new story by committee and relaxing and making some of that compromise doesn't work out either let's let's go let's go back to our like (laughs) individuality versus collectivism argument here's just the meta example of that issue but i do think things like some of the over the, the superstructure of the series, like going from like episodes seven, eight, nine, ten in particular, the, the kind of one-off episodes mm-hmm. in a sense that like it's almost seems like we've suddenly gone from a very strong arc-based story into these conundrum or even star character of the week format. Before we get back to the the stuff that happens and you know, starts in eleven but gets to you know twelve through fifteen, that probably is a result of storytelling by committee. Like 10, all the stuff with Zorame, we get to see it, but he never brings it up to anybody else. He doesn't even remember it lately. Yeah. It absolutely may, makes no narrative impact in the story whatsoever. It's fascinating, but it seemed like, how did you get that information to the audience without it changing the story you're telling? <laughs> you can't put a, a character who drives the story in that situation, um, and you've got to f- come up with some reason why... He never says anything. Now, I liked it as a character study. I actually liked the episode itself a lot. But it strikes me as you could have stuck that almost anywhere between 6 and 12, and it wouldn't have mattered. And I think if an audience has built the expectation in 1 through 6 that this is narratively driven and we're going to continue advancing our myth arc every week, then 7, 8, 9, 10, really, it's like going from a paved road onto cobblestone. As far as the expectations that were set for us, right? That's not like a wrong or right choice, but the story told us to expect a certain thing. 
Gosh, my mind is in such a strange place right now. We, we've covered so many things, but uh, I wanted to end on hopefully what it will come out as encouragement. Uh, so I know what you do is difficult. When I first got into anime, I was just consuming voraciously and indiscriminately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just looking for the anime rush. And then I found myself being on the road for about 12 to 14 hours a day. Uh, and that's when I started consuming a lot of nearly on red. I apologize. <laughs> it, it made these days doable, but I don't know when it happened. Uh, my perspective started to change little by little. And I, I guess I started shifting from that critique mindset to this appreciation mindset by virtue of hearing an analytical voice versus a review voice. And I got to appreciate that change very recently. Um, I saw the movie The Green Knight. But dying to see that, but I can't get <laughs> yeah, to it. I, I won't say anything about the, the film itself, but uh, previously I just would have watched that and been like dazzled by the visual spectacle and be like, hmm, what a weird story. But <laughs> you know, upon viewing it, I was like, oh, okay, I recognize this. Like, this is this kind of archetype. And I, was, I got so much more out of that. I think that's partly uh, from your influence. Uh, so thank you for that. And uh, hopefully there's many more people out there that uh, have been enriched because of your long hours of labor. Well, that is that is very high praise. Thank you. Honestly, it's like the best thing I can possibly hear. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, novelty runs out. Yeah. You consume a lot. You eventually will have seen every story pattern. You have seen every trick and trope and joke. And if novelty is all that's driving you, that's a high that is finite. Mm -hmm. But somebody long ago put me on to analysis or deep reading or whatever you want to phrase it is not something you do for a paper in high school or college, but you treat as kind of your default way of consuming things. You know, like the, there's a joke if you ever take literary criticism, you'll never ever be able to just watch a film again. You'll never be able to just read a book again. You will forever be doomed to try to pull it apart. But that is a pursuit that has no bottom. You are never going to run out of ways to enjoy something by digging further into it, comparing it to what other people get out of it, continuing the conversation that the work of art begins. Mm. A lot of what motivates me to do what I do is to pay that advice forward. It's like it changed my entire life about how I consume mm. things. And the older you get, the harder it is to see new things. Nothing new under the sun. Your your joy will diminish if you stick only to surface reads, chasing just what is entertaining or fulfills a certain mood need. Mm -hmm. And that's that's sad. Like it's like the, some of the the joy or the light will, will go out of your life as far as things that used to make you so happy and used to compel mm -hmm. you. So you know, one day I'll figure out how to make it so I can do this all the time and, and, and four years and I still haven't turned ads on on my YouTube channel. Not that it matters. Not that, not, not missing well, much, but me. Um, <laughs> that's a, <laughs> it, for me, it's almost beside the point. Mm -hmm. It would be more like a, well, that would let me do this more. And it's more like somebody helped me out a lot by steering me this way. And I want to share that, that kind of joy with other people and that, way of consuming everything around you it's effortful it's sometimes it's fun just to watch or read something that's just stupid and entertaining that's, sure. that's okay but again that it, it runs dry it's fine when you're young yeah you haven't seen everything yet like a shower slowly losing its hot water <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it it runs out <laughs> yeah. 
it's no longer pleasant to stand in the stream. Well, I think you're doing it right. And actually, I know that I'm not alone in this sentiment. Uh, we had another guest, uh, Hayden, for the Triangle Bomb episode. Uh, he was also familiar with Nearly on Red, and uh, we compared notes. And it's something that I say a lot now. Um, my consumption of media for most of my life was vegetative, but being able to see things through a different lens has helped it become something that's like restorative, uh, just more rich and meaningful experience. Mm. And the the sentiment about like encouraging an analytical approach and a very hands-on approach to uh, uh, consuming media, it seems like a logical like hand in hand or even the other side of the coin of death of the author. Because it's like, let the author die and let your interpretation live. Like who gives a fuck what Nishigori said about the shit after the fact? He made it. Now, what do you think of it? That's the important thing. Because if it's somebody else's uh, uh, interpretation and if it's somebody else's analysis of it, that's fine, but it's external to you. It's not going to inform your life. You're not going to change the way you think just listening to someone else. You got to have conversations like these, which is, I'm so glad that uh, uh, Brian was a fan of yours. And I'm so glad that we were able to reach out because I think we do have a lot in common. (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally agree. Like that's, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to get a chance to talk about this again. It was very emotional, nostalgic, and kind of challenging experience to watch this again. I spent so much time with it way back in the day. Yeah. It's, it's like listening to your favorite song too many times. You just don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> um, but this was enough distance, I think, to really look at it again. I've forgotten a few little details, and it was really delightful to have a reason to go back and then, yeah, like you said, have a conversation. And, um, each person's experience is with a piece of work, a piece of art is different because we're different. We have different biases and experiences and levels of education. Even the things we've seen are different. You go back and watch it again. Guess what? You're not the same person <laughs> to watch it the first time. Yeah. So quite apart from knowing some things that happen, you are different and therefore your experience of the work is mm-hmm. different. Now multiply that times every person who watches it and rewatches it, and you have millions of different versions of what is technically the same text. Yeah, for me, like this, you're doing here the podcast and all that, that's that is what art is doing on purpose. It is a conversation. The <laughs> artist's part of the conversation is the art, and they need to stay on that side. <laughs> and then the audience consumes the work and then what they think and talk about it and how they try to apply it decode it, uh, discuss it amongst themselves, that's our part of the conversation. The, the artist part is the art. So like you said, death of the author is the, that's the, this is the natural evolution of that idea that the artist has already said their piece. Now mm-hmm. it's our turn. And uh, you know, Galileo has a, this is not a rough translation, but he has a quote that always sticks with me, which is that I've never met a man that I couldn't learn something from. And Galileo's saying that, right? Like, that's not <laughs> me saying that. That's like someone who's like... <laughs> I've heard that. I didn't know Galileo said that. That's interesting. Yeah, and it might be apocryphal, but the sentiment sure. is the same. What kind of... Like the arrogance required to think that someone has everything figured out about a work is unfathomable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's always something you can learn from a work and learn from someone else's opinion of a work. Even sometimes a very surface read about why they didn't like something they pointed like this one thing they didn't like, and it's never even occurred to you to think of it that way, you know? 
And so, but I apply that same standard to the author. <laughs> what makes you think and you know your work inside mm. and out? People put all kinds of things into their work they don't Absolutely. realize. I think a lot of my, what guides why I talk about things the way I do is I spend a lot of time trying to write stories myself. So I have a lot of empathy with the storytellers in the first place. Mm. But I spent a decent amount of time helping other people with their stories. And I'm, I might be a better editor than a writer, honestly. But talking to someone in the process of creating a story and telling them what I got from it and then hearing what they were actually trying to do is quite an insight into what storytellers are doing and how much they understand about what they're putting in their story. And honestly, sometimes it's not a lot. <laughs> you know, sometimes they put things in there they really wish they hadn't. You know, you can pick up on some people's biases right. that they have no idea they're showing or a, a worldview that's myopic and they don't realize it is. And to leave aside connections they've made in their mind and they assign certain symbols or metaphors or visual cues without maybe consciously thinking what they're doing, but it shows up in their work and other people might pick up on what they're doing without them having done it on purpose, but it still came from the same place. And so seeing how often that actually happens <laughs> with storytellers, it's hard to be like, yeah, the author definitely knows what's going on in their story. No one, no one needs to listen to anyone else. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Like, like la asking musicians what their, what does your song mean? And then ask them again in 10 years you're going to get a different answer. Probably. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've, I feel like you've given us a great episode and our spoiler section could be its own bonus episode. Who knows? But I really do need to get going. Sorry. Alex, I apologize. No, it's okay. I, Most of this will be cut. I know it's painful. <laughs>